Hi, Val here, and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. I live in one of Africa's most remote wilderness areas. Nature and wildlife is my biggest passion. I hand-raised Serga the lioness and walked the Kalahari to join her on her hunts. My work is on tourism and nature conservation. For fun, but also for wildlife monitoring, I fly anything that gets me into the air. I live in an old caravan. The next supermarket is a two and a half hour drive away on sandy and bumpy roads. There is no cell reception anywhere nearby and the only comms is an extremely slow, extremely expensive satellite internet connection. I am Valentin Grüner and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. Hi everybody, this is Val again with The Kalahari Diaries and it's episode number eight of my podcast, And this time I'm going to speak about flying and how I got into flying, where it sort of came from, why we fly and sort of what we use it for in the bush in our life here in Africa. And the whole thing started off actually at my home in Germany. I mean, I was a young kid. I was a young boy. I was fascinated with anything that moved and airplanes were obviously the ultimate sort of dream. And my parents worked at this home for handicapped children And the chef at this place was flying as a hobby over the weekend sometimes. And I remember that one time he took me along and we went flying in some small aircraft. I can't even remember what it was. But it was the first time I got to be in a small airplane. I was absolutely fascinated. I guess as a child, I was maybe just a typical boy. I was fascinated by pretty much anything that had an engine and could move somehow. And obviously an airplane was kind of the ultimate dream. And I did get to hold the stick a little bit while we were in the air. Obviously, I couldn't even reach the rudder pedals at that stage yet, but I was extremely proud. And that was pretty much the only time. I remember later at some stage, my dad went on a little scenic flight with me. And I did meet a guy who flies helicopters much later on, who took me for a spin in a helicopter. There's always been that fascination of getting into the air. Like I said, anything with an engine, anything that moves. It was just this thing that I've always loved. I had my first old vehicles and little motorbikes when I was like around 10 years old, started you know, working on that a bit, trying to fix them up and got some of them running, some I didn't, some I broke. But has always been a big fascination for that. And I think a lot of people can relate to this. Yeah, that's been the, the very beginning of, of flying for me. Then coming to Africa, first, there wasn't much. I was just stuck in Namibia for a long time, then in Botswana. But in Botswana, I got to go into small aircraft for the first times when I did a few sort of little jobs here and there in the Okavango Delta because most of the way of getting around to the lodges and back and supplying the lodges and everything is done by light aircraft. That's actually been published on a fairly popular series about the bush pilots up in Maun. So I got to fly quite a few times out into lodges in the Delta and things like that for small jobs that I had to do there. And that was the first time flying over these wildlife areas, seeing elephants and all this stuff from above. And it's just fascinating to watch all of this. Yeah, that definitely didn't stop my fascination for flying, but I never really imagined that I'd actually managed to get a pilot's license and all these things, mainly for financial reasons, because I thought I'd never be able to afford anything like that. The next step then got me a lot more into flying was when I met somebody who was doing work with wildlife, relocating animals from reserves where maybe there's an overpopulation of certain animals and then catching these 
herds of animals and moving them into new reserves so that they don't have to be killed in the previous one and stuff like that. There's quite a lot of work, also injured animals, sick animals, certain species like rhino, for example, that need to be darted and checked. They need to be yeah, vaccinated. We need to test them. We take DNA samples and things like that. And all of this is done from a helicopter. I got to fly quite a lot of hours, maybe around 100 hours in a small helicopter together with this guy catching some animals. Basically, you take the helicopter and chase these, these wild animals into boma areas that you set up, which is basically a massive funnel, like a kilometer wide and a kilometer long that's set up out of curtains, canvas curtains. And then the wildlife is slowly being pushed with the helicopter from the air so that they just walk into these areas. And as they're in, you give a signal to some people on the ground and they start pulling these curtains closed. And that is how the animals get caught. From there, they get loaded into trucks and then they can be moved to different areas. That got me a lot more into the whole idea of wildlife-related stuff with aviation. And on top of that, I had been doing over the years quite regularly wildlife counts, simply to know what wildlife and how many is in a certain area so that the area can actually be assessed and that, that we can figure out, is this area healthy? Are there too many animals grazing for this space that's available for them? Why are there too few? And so on. And that's all done from the air. In some areas where the reserve is a bit smaller, that is done very intensively by flying very narrow transects and literally counting almost everything that you can see in much larger areas. This is done differently where transects are flown much further apart and they are much, much longer. And then the counts are basically used as sampling that is then later calculated over the entire area. But I got to do quite a lot of that as well, which obviously was something that I love doing. It's just so amazing to be in the air flying low level over these areas and actually looking for animals. And then all you got to do is note it down and co continue going. And it's just an amazing experience. And I'm very, very privileged to having even been being able to experience any of that. Yeah, so this fascination just existed and something that I've always wanted to do. And then something pretty special happened. I met a photographer, fantastic photographer, who came past to visit, taking pictures in the area where we were based previously in Serga's old home. This guy was flying a motorized paraglider. It's something that i sort of seen before, but I never really thought about it. And I never, yeah, I think I associated paragliding more with mountain regions. I've obviously seen it at home. I grew up close to the Swiss Alps and quite used to seeing these guys hopping off the hills and also something that I would have done any time, but it was financially not really something that I ever really fit in. This guy just shows up and pulls out his equipment out of the back of his land cruiser and, you know, half an hour later, an hour later, when everything is put out, you're basically ready to go and you're up in the air, which was absolutely fascinating for me. And uh, he was there for some time and became actually quite a good friend of mine. And we ended up talking quite a lot. And obviously, I wanted to know everything about this paraglider. And he actually let me try to not run with the wing. He didn't allow me to put the engine on my back because he, he knew I probably would have tried to take off with it. But he allowed me to, to use the wing and basically showed me how to start running with it, which is the first bit of getting this paraglider started. So you, you put the wing out so that it's facing into the wind and then hook yourself all up into the harness and basically just run very, very hard forward while you're pulling on a couple of little lines called rises, rises and then that wing will start coming up on top of your head 
and your engine is just on like a backpack and as soon as the wing is on top of you, you you can run a bit faster, the wing starts flying overhead and if the engine's on your back and you push the throttle, you start taking off. That just seemed like a very, very beautiful way of flying and actually reasonably cheap, especially if I started looking into the whole used product range. There's a nice supplier in Germany called Fresh Breeze and I looked up a lot of that. They helped me quite a bit figuring out what's available on the used market with engines. I actually started getting an idea of a way of getting into the air that actually is possible. Also, Botswana is one of the countries in the world where you do not need a license to fly. Actually, most countries, you do not need a license to fly these things, although it is, and I should say that here very directly, it is absolutely recommended that somebody does a course. This is usually just a week or two weeks or over a few weekends or whatever somebody wants to do. But one should definitely go and learn properly how to fly this thing. The issue for me was being set in Botswana. It wasn't easy getting an instructor out into the middle of the Kalahari because there's nobody in the country who instructs this stuff. There are people in South Africa where actually a license is required to fly a paraglider. But yeah, at the end of the day, that turned out to be way too expensive. It would have cost me more than purchasing the equipment just to have somebody there to show me. I didn't initially have the money for the equipment either. So it was just this idea that started floating around in my head for quite a while, maybe a year or two. It never really left. It was this dream of maybe being able to fly, maybe being able to do game counts and just to having to hire somebody to come with an airplane to count a wildlife area costs a hell of a lot of money. So I had this idea saying, hey, instead of us having to do that every year, I could save so much if I wait for good enough weather and I can do it with the paraglider. You know, just one time, one year would actually finance the, buying the equipment and everything. So it started making more and more sense in my head. Although I don't think anyone's really used paragliders to actually do proper game counts before. But over a smaller wildlife area, it seemed reasonably possible. I never really let go of the idea. I also had a good friend and business partner who at that time had spent quite a few years in the bush there with, with me. I don't know if he actually wanted to help me or if he just got too annoyed with my guitar playing because eventually he told me that if, if I finally learn the whole of Nothing Else Matters and not just half the song on guitar, then he will actually borrow me the money so that I can buy the paraglider. It only took me another day or two, I think, and I had uh, the whole of Nothing Else Matters figured out on guitar and I could play the entire song around the campfire instead of just half the version, which, yeah. Actually, it was quite nice. I'd been planning to learn the whole thing for a while anyhow. So at the end of the day, that was the moment when I could actually start planning. And I talked to this manufacturer in Germany. We got the first order in for this stuff. And I ordered a used engine with a new harness, a new wing, and everything else was new. Just the engine was used, but it was freshly overhauled by the, by the place in Germany where that stuff is distributed. Yeah, now it was obviously taking quite a while to get this bigger package sent over to Botswana. And in the meantime, I think I spent every free minute on the internet trying to find out how to fly this thing because I did definitely not have the money to bring an instructor over for some weeks just because it's a massive long travel and the people are really stuck there. It's not like they can come for the weekend and then go back to their job. They would have really had to spend time there and then it's weather dependent when you can fly. It would have maybe been weeks so it's not easy to get somebody away from their normal life for such a long period of time. I spoke to the friend of mine who sort of got me hooked on this whole idea, obviously trying to get tips from him. His main tip was that I should get the training 
And I actually do agree with that in, in some way up to an extent. But since that just wasn't really an option for me, I looked up everything. I read every website there is about this motorized paragliding. I looked up every video that there is available on YouTube where there is quite a bit of stuff where people explain how this works and, and everything. They all tell you at the same time that nobody should use that as instruction. But I really looked at it very, very carefully. Yeah, once the paragliders arrived, I I started running with it on the airfield just to practice controlling the wing, not taking off, not even having the engine with me, just to be able to pull it up, make sure every time I run with it, the wing comes up nicely. I can steer it and I can run maybe 100, 200 meters with it and fly it over my head. And that's really all you would need for a normal takeoff. That worked out very well. I, I got used to the wing quite nicely. It was no problem. I felt very comfortable pulling up the wing and running around with it on the airfield. Eventually, I decided to start running with the engine, not with the engine running, just to have the added weight, which is about 40 kilos on your back, and just getting used to the whole thing with all the gear on. Yeah, that was just the first practice, and I did quite a bit of that until I was very comfortable with it. And in the meantime, I kept preparing for my first flight and reading and looking up everything about it. One day when the weather was very nice, it was really perfect. There was just a little breeze and it was cool. There was no thermal activity. It was a very beautiful day. Looking at the weather actually is probably one of the most important things with paragliding. Flying these things is actually relatively easy compared to other aircraft. But the weather is extremely important to keep an eye out for because they are very weather dependent. That soft wing can collapse and things like that. And yeah, they're basically just like a tissue in the wind. You really got to be a bit careful that it doesn't pick up. And the Kalahari can be rough with, with the weather. Yeah, I started preparing for my first flight. I was obviously quite excited. It sort of worked out well. I started running. The wing came up. The engine was now actually running for the first time. And I was running and the wing is flying. And I put throttle. The whole thing took off. Now, I should add to this that at this stage, all the guests we had in camp, plus all the staff working for us and the staff working at the neighboring lodge, which was just next to the airfield where I was practicing, pretty much everybody was there to watch because they wanted to see this first takeoff. And in hindsight, I should have probably kept quiet about my first attempt, but uh, somehow I couldn't keep my mouth shut and everybody knew what was kind of going on anyways. It's, it's very yeah, small, these places, and you can't really hide away from anything. So everyone was standing there watching. To my embarrassment, my first takeoff, it did take off. But what I hadn't really thought about up front and what somehow maybe the internet didn't tell me enough about was the torque effect that this whole engine has as soon as your feet leave the ground, which makes sense. It's, it's, it's just logical, but just something that wasn't really clear in my mind. And what happened then is that I turned quite sharp to the right immediately after takeoff because of the engine turning me around and that way my the one side of my body basically pulling down on on the wing which which causes the wing to steer and it steered into the yeah into the right on the right was the edge of the airfield with just a little bit of shrubs what happened was that I got extremely nervous the moment that thing took off and didn't go straight up like I was hoping it would do so I got a bit of a fright and I let go of the throttle. And that was actually my only real mistake because the moment I let the throttle go, I stopped climbing. The whole thing came down pretty quickly. And I basically just had a sort of rough landing at the edge of the airstrip. The engine was still 
sort of semi running. I switched off the moment I touched down pretty much, but obviously people were there taking a video and there was just a big dust cloud and I was sitting in the bush. Luckily, it didn't hit any thorn bushes. My equipment was fine aside from a branch that had uh, cut off some of the ropes that are there to protect your hands from hitting the propeller behind you. I could fix the ropes up again pretty quickly and I knew exactly what had gone wrong. So I didn't want to wait now and get nervous about this whole story, anything. So pretty much I think about 10 minutes later, I had everything set up again on the airfield and I went for my second attempt, which worked out perfectly fine. It took off very nicely, still steered a little bit to the right, but I was counter steering it with the left brake and it took off very beautifully. I did a few rounds, just overhead the airfield over the nearby lodge Really nothing, nothing much. I just carefully tried to circle around a little bit. Yeah, I think the next the next big moment now was the landing. And that is the one thing that you can't really practice up front much because you're just sitting on the ground with the whole thing and you're running. So that was just something that I had now read about, looked at on videos and sort of mentally did prepare myself quite well for that. Also, the airfield there is perfect. It's over a kilometer long. And I did sort of go overhead the field and I planned a descent to land just next to where the vehicles were parked with the people watching and everything. And the good thing was I was at this big airfield because I did overshoot by about probably 300 meters or something like that. So good news was the glider glides a hell of a lot further than I would have thought from judging up in the air. And the landing was nothing terrible. I did fall on my nose, but the engine was off. It was a good landing. I did land on my feet just on the edge of the airfield where I was planning to land on the grass instead of the stones. And coming down with that 40 or 45 kilogram engine for the first time was just yeah a bit hard to, to actually keep my stand. You come down very slowly and the braking worked well. So the landing worked out fine, but at the end of it, I fell on my nose, which is what the internet had told me to do rather than falling backwards because if I fall backwards, I could bend the cage that's around the propeller and that could damage stuff on the engine. So everything actually worked out according to plan, aside from the first takeoff. And this is how I actually started my personal flying career, without any license, teaching myself on YouTube, and it worked out well. Flying the paraglider is such a beautiful way of being in the air, and I absolutely love it. I didn't actually have much time to, to fly then, because the next thing was that we got the whole move going with Silga to the new location. There was a lot of planning and a lot to do. I didn't have much time for flying at all. But once the move was done, I started practicing flying again at the new area. That is where we were now in this new private wildlife area. And a game count had never been done over this place. I had an idea of the wildlife that's there now because we'd been driving around the area quite a bit. But it was very exciting to actually go into the air and confirm this whole story from above. That's what I did with the paraglider after quite a few practice runs, making sure I'm actually very comfortable flying it, having maybe done by then 20, 25 hours on the paraglider. I then decided to do the first game count. So I put everything on my GPS and started flying the whole area, which actually worked out very well. I, I picked a very nice, calm day and it was an amazing flight. It took about five hours I had the whole area counted and we got a very good idea of the amount of wildlife, especially the herbivores that's running around in the space. A little bit later on, I then did a game count at the neighboring 
wildlife area, also a private one, but quite a bit bigger, more than double the size of ours. I had to split that count into two days because it simply is a bit much to do everything in, in one day and the weather doesn't allow to fly th that, that long. So I flew the first day, then had to take a break. Also, it gets extremely hot then and the animals don't move much, but it wasn't really possible to go out in the afternoon again because the weather had gotten too bad. I finished up the next day and it actually seemed like a fairly good count compared to the years that they had on record before and what the manager actually thought was around. It worked out quite well. But I have to admit that spending, I think it was about nine hours in this paraglider just in between the two mornings was actually extremely exhausting. The wind and the sun in your face and everything for that whole time and focusing on the on the animals underneath you and not being able to you know how much fuel is exactly left in your tank. So you're always just flying on the watch, hoping that your fuel calculations are correct and all of this stuff. It was quite quite rough, just this whole idea of, of flying. And I was really exhausted afterwards. So it kind of was a clear sign that counting that type of area and having to do it over two days, probably pretty much the limit of what I can achieve with the paraglider for actually work-wise work to really contribute. The other thing is that in these wildlife areas, you want to be able to go on patrols, look for poachers, which means basically if, if you hear shots or anything, if you find tracks from vehicles, getting up into the air is such an easy way of following this because our vegetation structure is relatively open. We have a lot of trees, but nothing is like a forest where anybody could hide ever. It's only very thick bush and nobody could drive through there. So you can follow in the air a, a vehicle track so easily obviously much quicker than having to walk on it or drive on it. And we don't want to drive all over the area because driving off-road damages a lot of vegetation. It's not really ideal. So being in the air for that is perfect. And finding people from the air, you can take photographs, you can see what's going on. And if it's any illegal activity, the photographs are perfect proof of what's happening. You can show from the air, you can zoom and take pictures of the license plates, take pictures of the individuals at that site. And you can then forward all of this to the authorities who can then come and sort the issue out, which is much safer than trying to approach the situation from, from the ground. But the paraglider is really not designed for that kind of stuff. It's fairly slow. You really don't want to be hanging in this slow thing on top of potentially a poacher who's standing there being armed on the ground. And also weather dependent, you just don't have that opportunity to say, I'm just going to jump into the paraglider right now and go for a nice flight. And because of that, I started having this idea in my mind now about actually getting a small aircraft. I'd started looking into the market generally. I have a few friends who fly small airplanes and I gotten quite used to that. They let me fly with them quite a lot. And yeah, so I got a little bit of experience with it. And that was basically what yeah got me into thinking that's, that's actually perfect. A small aircraft that is big enough so it can fly in relatively windy conditions so that I basically have something that I actually can jump in and go if I want to, that's safe to fly, that I can also use for crossing some distances. Because the other thing for us where we live is that just to go to a meeting to the capital, Botswana's capital called Gaborone, is about a seven, actually from, from our camp directly, it's almost an eight-hour drive to get there. If you do a little stop in between, it becomes more than eight hours so that's quite a substantial drive. And because of the first sort of 
60, 70 kilometers, which is just going over sand dunes, you need a four-wheel drive vehicle, a series four-wheel drive vehicle. It's what we use only Toyota Land Cruisers or Toyota Hilux to do those trips. Those vehicles are very heavy on fuel and not the fastest on the tar road. On top of that, Botswana's tar roads are basically covered in goats, donkeys, sheep, horses, all kinds of livestock. So going for one meeting in the capital, which is where sometimes it's just required to be there for, for certain things, to see government departments, to see other people, or even just to get certain things that we can't get at the little village that is the, sort of the only other place that's close to us. That's basically a hell of a journey with a lot of focus where we have to spend the day driving, then a night in a hotel. After the night in the hotel, a whole day basically in that town, planning the meetings, doing some shopping runs that, that are necessary, and then having another night in the hotel because you don't want to end up driving overnight again and spending the whole of the next day going back. And that is a very intense trip with a lot of driving, having just one day where you squeeze everything in that you need to get done and then heading back and three days are gone and a hell of a lot of money on a total of 18 to maybe nearly 20 hours of, of driving. An airplane, even a small light airplane that flies relatively slow can get to that town in about two and a half hours. The airplanes that are that size, little two-seater light aircraft, only use about 20 liters of normal petrol an hour, which means for about 50 liters of petrol, we can get to town, which previously was not possible at all. The Land Cruiser actually takes about 25, 20, 25 liters on 100 kilometers, depending on how we drive these vehicles. So they're very heavy on fuel. It's a 750, 780 kilometer drive, somewhere around there. So you can do the math. It's a hell of a lot more fuel on the vehicle, much more than three, four times the amount of that the aircraft would use to get to to town. And timing-wise, obviously, flying two and a half hours means leaving early in the morning, six o'clock with sunrise or even earlier. Uh, you'd arrive in town by 8.30, 9 o'clock, which is basically in time for a nice breakfast, have a few meetings, and then do some shopping. The airplane can carry qu quite a bit if you buy the right aircraft. And then you can head back with a bit of shopping and everything is done and you get come home the same, the same evening on the same day, which means you save the money for the hotel, you save the three days of, of, of wasted time that you'd spend otherwise driving, and it's environmentally much more friendly. So from that perspective, having an aircraft to assist our work where we are is very important and makes a lot of sense. But initially getting a license to fly the airplane, purchasing the airplane and all of that stuff is quite a financial endeavor that I didn't really have an option for. So it remained a dream for quite a long time. Yeah, so the next thing that happened then was that my dad actually came to visit me in Africa for the first time. This was not long ago. I think I'd been in Africa for almost 10 years by then. I had only seen my family twice in that whole time before. So I really didn't have much contact and not at all for any reasons that we don't get along or anything like that, simply because I was just very, very busy and occupied here in Africa. My dad specifically was tied in for personal reasons back home in Germany. My dad and my whole family, mom, sister and everybody have been extremely supportive of me being in Africa this entire time in any way, emotionally, financially, wherever they could help. They've always been there for me 
my dad literally just turned around and said, look, I like this idea. It's it's amazing what you do. And he wants to borrow me the money to go and just get my license done. Because at this stage, we had moved to the new place. We had planned to start our operation with guests again. And we were actually sort of ready for that. But then due to licensing issues with the authorities and everything, we actually weren't able to open up our guest operation when we wanted to. And I now spent quite a lot of time basically just waiting to get the camp operating. And in the meantime, we were fundraising all the money for Serga's new fence, which we were busy developing and getting this 2,000 hectare ready for Serga. And while funds were coming in and everything was actually going well, but we did have quite a few times where there was weeks where I couldn't really do much. We didn't have enough money to order materials or buy anything yet, so we were waiting. And then even when you place an order for where we are, it usually takes a few weeks before everything arrives in the village that is closest to us. And only then can we start planning with our truck to pick up things and so on. Plus, we had a few workers on the farm that were helping with the fence construction. So for the first time, actually, in all this time that I spent in Africa, I, I had a little bit of time available where I could have done something else with my time. Not that I like leaving the bush or anything, but it sort of made sense that my dad said, look, now there's some time. You need the 40 flying hours and pass your practical test. And when that's done, you can get your private pilot's license. Now, people take different amounts of time for this, depending very much on how much time and effort they put into actually doing the pilot's license. Some people do it, you know, next to their job, so they only have time on the week, and some people do it while they're still in school. Others just take a bit longer, and some want to fly a lot more hours before they feel comfortable to do their final test and so on. So it varies quite a lot, but most places say like something like six months or, or whatever is a decent amount of time to do this. But I plan to do it in maximum sort of just over two months because my idea was to basically go down to the school to South Africa where the training is relatively efficient also worldwide actually quite quite a good standard yeah spend about four weeks then come back home organize a few things again see Serga see the staff look after everything make sure things are well and then go back do another four weeks and be finished now, most schools told me that's not possible, it's not going to work out. And then I've, one of them said, look, in theory, it's possible. We can try, but it's up to, to me, obviously, and we'll see how, how this goes. I booked with them to do my private pilot's license. And at the same time, the school I picked was in East London in South Africa at Border Aviation Club, a fantastic place, actually. I was very lucky that I picked this, had no idea before, but it's a very nice club, a nice little flying community there. If you're not so little, it's quite a big flying community with lots of airplanes and lots of aviation enthusiasts. And the school is part of the whole thing. It was also on the coast. For me, that was a big thing because I love the sea. I love the ocean. I used to windsurf a lot. I grew up on a lake. I love water. It's always been something that I thought I could never get away from ever in my life. And then I ended up living in the desert in a landlocked country. I do love that desert and I'd never want to leave it, but I hadn't even seen the ocean at that stage in, I think, about 14 years. I may have seen it on one of the international flights somewhere from above, but I haven't been on any beach. So it was quite amazing for me to to go there, have that smell again and all that feeling. And I had planned to maybe go do some surfing and things like that, but it turned out that doing the pilot's license actually took a hell of a lot more of my time and my energy than I had planned and hoped. But it worked out well. I got all my stuff done relatively quickly in the first four weeks I finished my exams pretty much 
Then I went back, organized a few things while I was there. I had materials coming, the materials had arrived. I could then drive some of the materials up so at least we had them ready for me. Then when I went back for my second four weeks, I finished all the flying that I had to do. I passed my final test. I received my license and I went back to Botswana to continue. And we got Sergas area finished and doing the license actually didn't slow down the fence building or anything. So it worked out very, very well. And I finally had my private pilot's license and most of my flying was done on small aircraft. The area there at the coast was nice and windy. So I think I got good training to start flying more. Obviously, now I had in my mind this whole idea set on buying an airplane. But unfortunately, that was kind of completely out of any financial perspective at that stage. So we focused on Sergas area, getting everything ready. And yeah, preparing everything for Sergas release. Yeah, so Sergas fence got finished. We managed to take Sergas on the first walks. The fundraisers were pretty much done and we were just focusing on finishing our little guest camp so that we can get ready for the guest operation. Now, this is when the whole corona thing started. The pandemic started coming up at first. It was just sort of thing in China and we didn't worry much about it. We planned to open up the camp in June. We were working with the government very heavily to getting our licenses ready. And then all of a sudden, this whole thing started spreading everywhere and the whole world shutting down, which meant for us, the income that we had planned to receive from June, obviously, is not going to happen. We also held off a little bit on the last funds that we had remaining from our money to actually finish the construction because now we weren't sure if anything's going to happen, if we're even going to be able to get guests into the camp. So it became a very, very uncertain, strange time for us. I'm not sure what it is, but somehow I feel like I'm extremely lucky with my life sometimes because out of the blue, we got contacted by a wonderful person who offered to help us further with Serga, said, look, we want to get this done, buy a collar for Serga, we want to help you so that she can be out because we were still a bit short on, on the funding for that. So we managed to do that. I wrote a very nice thank you letter because I was blown away by the generosity of, of purchasing this collar for us for to, to release Serga finally so that she can actually stay in this 2,000 hectare area. Yeah, these people actually simply offered and said, look, this is amazing. We want to help and we will buy you the airplane so that we can finance you this, so that you can, do, you can do your work. To be honest, I couldn't believe this at all. I, it was just mind-blowing. They also said that we need to do everything so that the plane can actually be there, that everything is organized the way it must be, which included that we needed to still build a hangar. The weather there can be very rough and any aircraft, it's just not a smart idea to, to park it outside, especially a light plane like that. It'll fly away in any storm and get damaged badly. So we had to build a small hangar. Being able to do that actually kept us busy for most of this pandemic times. We were busy setting up the hangar. We were allowed to continue working on the farm. Obviously, all the lockdown times that Botswana had, our staff simply decided to stay there with us. So it was an absolutely amazing thing that in this moment where we were really worried about this whole idea, whether we can continue because the fundraising for Sergas Fence, which is something we were busy with before, had finished. We were ready. The fence was there and we were really keen to just finish the camp up. It would have been another one or two months of hard work of building, getting everything licensed and opening up our operation. And then this whole blow to the entire the entire background of how we were going to run this was completely gone. The The footing was finished. We had no idea how to continue our life, actually. And then that happened. That was not planned, but it was just, yeah, absolutely amazing. And 
also extremely exciting. I think most people could imagine how how excited I got when I when I heard about this opportunity. So I had been looking at a specific aircraft that was available from pretty much the moment that I'd finished my pilot's license. And that aircraft was still there. Aircraft sell all right here, but it's not like a vehicle that just sells very quickly. It usually is there for a bit of time. People think about it carefully. But the aircraft was there for a very reasonable price. It's the ideal sort of bush plane thing that that I was looking in for. The two-seater, but it can carry substantially more luggage and weight than what most other airplanes in that sort of category can carry, which is perfect for us, which means we can fly to town, do a bit of shopping. And if we need a lot of shopping, I can fly alone and we can really fit in quite a bit. So perfect airplane. I managed to do the purchase, sorting out all the paperwork. Now, unfortunately, because of the lockdown, I wasn't able to actually go to South Africa and look at that airplane so I was stuck in Botswana this entire time with the lockdown. I had to purchase the aircraft entirely just on the basis of photographs, emails, obviously talking to many friends I have, talking to places who know these aircraft well, talking to the factory that actually builds these aircraft. Yeah, making sure that I'm not purchasing something something bad. But it all worked out. And then about six weeks ago, South Africa finally opened up their borders again because before that, despite my probably daily emails to all kinds of authorities. I never got any reply that was helpful in any way to get me a special permission to just cross the border, literally to get across to the other side. Our our camp is just about 60 kilometers away from the border. And every time we go shopping, I just look at the fence and I, I could have just climbed over so I can, I can get to Johannesburg to look at the aircraft. But in the end, it finally worked out. So about six weeks ago, I still had to go to the authorities, get a specific permit that I'm actually allowed to leave Botswana officially. But the South African side had opened up. So after I'd done a a COVID test, got my letter of authorization to leave the country from the health ministry, I was able to cross the border. It was quite an adventure because I I had to hitchhike across the border, only made it to the next town. And luckily, a friend who also has an aircraft then came to pick me up because all public transport was shut down, which I didn't expect. So he picked me up from that next town where I didn't manage to get a lift anymore in a plane, which was fantastic. Finally got to be in the air again, managed to get to Johannesburg. The same friend who picked me up in the aircraft is also involved with the business in Botswana. He has a place for me where I could stay here. And I did my tail wheel conversion, which because the the aircraft is a tail dragger, so it has the small wheel on the back instead of a small wheel on the front, which lifts the propeller fairly high off the ground, which makes an ideal plane for bush flying and landing on strips where the propeller is a bit secure from vegetation or anything uneven ground or stuff like that. But you need a specific rating to fly those type of airplanes. So I did that. I was planning to be here for about three weeks, four weeks max. And unfortunately, the whole thing ended up being a lot longer due to the whole pandemic situation. South Africa has been in a lockdown. The Civil Aviation Authority had been shut down for quite some time. General aviation flying was shut down completely as well as most of the big commercial flights. Yeah, even now, a lot of people are still working from home And things are still very, very slow. On top of that, they have a massive backlog of applications and things to work through that had been sort of lapsing in the meantime. 
and things are just even more slow than they usually are on top of that the bureaucratic stuff in, in Africa generally can take quite long and can be quite confusing. So it was a hell of an experience now. I finally, just a few days ago, got the last document for the aircraft to be fully legal to fly and fly internationally. Now I just need the last document from the Botswana side to allow me to keep the aircraft and fly it in Botswana, which should just take another day or two if things go well. And looking at the weather, it looks like in a couple of days I can fly home. That means that it's now Friday the 27th, I believe, of November. Now, this is by far the longest I've ever been away from Serga. I, yeah, I know she will recognize me. I'm not worried about that, but it's going to be one hell of a greeting when I go to see her again, and I cannot wait. I didn't plan to stay away this long, and if it would be normal conditions, I would have simply left after I finished my training, which only took a week, and then somebody else could have continued sorting out all the paperwork here for me. But because of COVID and travel not being possible and Botswana only opening up very recently for any actual travel, I was not sure whether I'd be able to travel back into South Africa after I returned to Botswana and how I would then get the aircraft across. And it's actually quite important for us now to actually get the airplane out there because we urgently need to do a game count. I don't want to do it in the paraglider again. And it will just help us with our lives so much. There are also issues with poaching in the area. We want to take the plane up, not just over our own area, but over the neighboring vast wildlife areas that are managed by the Botswana government. And we are working together with the wildlife department in Botswana. The authorities know us well, and they're very excited about the aircraft coming Hopefully just the presence of an airplane there will stop some of the poaching just because they'll be scared to get seen and hopefully just disappear from the area because it's usually lions, leopards, cheetahs, a lot of the cats that are being caught and smuggled across the border into the legal predator sort of commercial market that unfortunately exists in South Africa. And yeah, so it's a very important thing for us, not just for our own life and for my own excitement. I mean, this is going to be the biggest Christmas present anybody could have ever made. And although we were planning to have it done about six months ago, it actually turns out to, yeah, it will be like a Christmas present timing-wise as well when we get there. As I can't wait to take this airplane home and be back in the bush, be back with Serga, be back with our workers, be back with my girlfriend and just continue the life that I normally have there because I, I have never even been in a city for this long in my entire life. So it's actually becoming rather frustrating to just sit here at the moment. Yeah, so in the end, I would just like to say a huge thanks to my to my own dad for making it possible by actually getting me the pilot's license, to everybody who's been supporting us along the way and making this whole life possible out here. And a massive thank you to the wonderful person who actually got us this lovely aircraft and I cannot wait to take it back home. Um, for the next episode, because of all the talk about flying and aircraft and so on and that we're going to use it for counting wildlife and things like that, I think it'll be time to just speak about what it actually means to manage a small wildlife area like our one here, this private area, and how that applies then to larger area, the big national parks. But really, what's actually on the ground needed physically? How do we look after everything and what needs to be done and why does it need to be done? Why do we need to manage our areas and how does it work? I think that's going to be an interesting episode, more about wildlife and back to the bush. And hopefully I'll be back in the bush as well at that time. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. And bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Kalahari Diaries. Did you enjoy the podcast? Fantastic. You can help me tremendously by subscribing and rating it on your podcast app. Leave a review and tell friends and family about it if you feel like it. If you want to know more about the story, go ahead and check out the website on sergeytheliones.com or follow me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Val Grüne, that is at V-A-L-G-R-U-E-N-E-R, and at Modisa Wildlife Project, where I'm sharing photos and videos from the Kalahari on a regular basis. I'm Val, and you've been listening to the Kalahari Diaries. Mm. Mm.